Morning Church. If you would, please turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Throughout this letter to Timothy, Paul has repeatedly warned him to look out for those who would lead the church in Ephesus astray. Last time we saw specifically that some of these false teachers were living religious lifestyles because they thought that this would bring them physical wealth. In 1 Timothy 6 verse 5 we read that these false teachers are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. They thought that a religious lifestyle would either gain them access to other Christians' pockets, to their wealth, or that religious activity was the magic formula that guaranteed them health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. They weren't pursuing godliness out of love for the God who purchased them from slavery to sin and eternal death. And they weren't pursuing godliness for the sake of being found faithful when the Lord returns and welcomes his servants into his eternal kingdom. Instead, religious activity was just a means to the wealth of this world. They didn't love God. They loved the things they thought God would owe them if they obeyed his magic formula or obedience. These thoughts drive Paul to write about genuine godliness as it relates to the riches or the wealth of this world. Again, he has just denounced these false teachers as depraved in mind and deprived of the truth because they imagine that godliness is a means to financial gain. We then continue in verses 6 through 10. Paul says to Timothy, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's go to the Lord and ask Him for His mercy and grace as we look into His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You that Your Word is what we need to have life and to have it abundantly now and for eternity. Yet, Lord, if we do not hear your word, receive it, and then obey it, then it is actually a curse to us. It is a curse to all those who still remain in rebellion. Father, I pray that no one sitting here would hear your words and then reject it. I pray that your spirit would move among us, softening hearts, giving us love and joy to hear your word and then to obey it. Would you do that for each one here today? It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. What is godliness with contentment? We've come across the idea of godliness before in this letter, and I suggested to you last time this definition. 
Godliness is an accurate understanding of God that results in a right life lived before God. Godliness is not just theological knowledge, and it is not just religious activity. Godliness is both understanding and life working together in unison for the purpose of pleasing and honoring God our King. The false teachers who loved money claimed to be godly. They claimed godliness for themselves because they were full of theological knowledge and debate, and they were very active in religion. But to point out their hypocrisy, Paul names a qualification of godliness that should have been obvious to everyone who knew anything about the teachings of Jesus. Paul says that true godliness requires contentment. The Greek word translated contentment literally means sufficiency or enough. A practical example of contentment is when you are measuring out sugar for a chocolate chip cookie recipe. You look at the recipe in front of you and it says that you need 350 grams of sugar. There are instructions. You get out your measuring device and separate out exactly 350 grams of sugar. Contentment is that moment when you look at the recipe, the sugar, and the measuring device, and then say in your mind and heart, it is enough. You are satisfied that your batch of cookies has exactly the right amount of sugar it needs to come out perfect in the end. Contentment means that you say in your heart, it is enough. For the Christian, contentment is this conviction in mind and heart that it is enough. But what do I mean by it? What is enough? Well, let's look back at the text. In the passage, Paul says that we must strive for godliness with contentment. So let's break down these words into their practical meanings. Godliness means knowing God and living for Him, according to our definition. And contentment means it is enough. With this in mind, may I suggest to you that godliness with contentment means that for the Christian, it is enough to know God and live for Him. The heart of a Christian must always be coming back to this foundational belief, to this de declaration of their heart that it is enough to know Him and to live for Him. Paul says to have this knowledge of God, a faithful life, and inner contentment with that, no matter the circumstances that come, he says that this is great gain. It's clear that Paul is contrasting the gain that the false teachers were pursuing and this great gain that godliness with contentment affords. One type of gain is evil while the other is good. So what's the difference? Why is it evil and wicked to pursue one type of gain, but good and right for us to pursue another type of gain? In passages like these, it is helpful, it's very helpful for me to put these two similar desires in, in the biblical picture of spiritual kingdoms. There is the spiritual kingdom of this world. 
It is ruled by the devil, is cursed, in bondage to sin, in rebellion to God, and destined for destruction. But then there is the spiritual kingdom of God. Christ is its king. It is the blessed realm where there is peace, forgiveness, restoration, and eternal life. In this kingdom, God's approval is the ultimate treasure. It radiates from him like light and warmth and fills everyone it falls on with joy and fullness. The scriptures paint this picture for us over and over again of these two kingdoms. And it pleads with all those who would have life and have it abundantly to strive for the kingdom of God. But there's a problem. We cannot yet see or touch the kingdom of God while living here on this earth. If you are a Christian, then you have an awareness of its presence in you. And you experience glimpses of it while sitting around the table with your family reading the Bible or singing together as a congregation as we just did or taking the Lord's Supper together, sometimes working hard with your hands and receiving the fruit of your labor brings that joy that reflects the kingdom of God. Watching little children run and play in the garden is full of joy and peace with not another thought in the world other than their enjoyment in God's creation. Or sometimes when your wife makes eye contact with you from across a crowded room and she just smiles, filling your heart with that warmth from that type of relationship. These are, these are glimpses of the kingdom of God and the joy it affords. But in our current state, these glimpses are so easily forgotten and choked by the realities of another kingdom, the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world is before our eyes always. We are in enemy territory as ambassadors left behind to warn the people of this rebellious kingdom of the coming day of judgment. And the kingdom of God comes with wrath and fire on all remaining rebellion. And the kingdom of this world has made it their mission to take every good thing that God originally created and twist it into a mutilated shadow of its former purpose. Work, food, drink, sex, comfort, housing, beauty, trees, animals, precious metals, the list can go on and on. All of it has been twisted from its original purpose by this kingdom. These things are made into idols for worship and then placed along the streets and the marketplaces, on huge billboards, and even in our own homes, demanding that all citizens of this kingdom pick out their favorite idols, their favorite things, and worship them. This kingdom has the goal of eternally securing the, the people's devotion to the spiritual kingdom of darkness. Inter eternally ensuring that they don't hear the heralds in the streets warning of the righteous king who is coming in wrath against the city, numbing people against the witness of the true God written on their heart, hardening them against God's word so graciously given, making them ignorant and blind to the mercy of God that spares them one more moment of life. Christians know that we live in this kingdom right now. 
We know we have been left behind in enemy territory. We know that this world is not our home. We know that we are strangers and pilgrims. But because our Lord has not yet returned, because of his patience toward this wicked generation, because of that, we sometimes grow weary in well-doing. We start to look around at the life that this kingdom could afford us or could offer us. And the immediate pleasures all around us tempt us. They tempt our impatient hearts to do evil. And we're tempted to live as if this life is our eternity. As if this world is our home. As if the mutilated pleasures around us are enough to satisfy us. As if another idol in my home will fill the God-sized hole in my heart. In a word, Christians are daily tempted to gain the whole world, yet lose their soul. In Luke 4, we read about Jesus who was tempted by the devil to commit this very sin. Jesus was fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. He is weak, hungry, and tired, and the devil comes to him and begins tempting him to worship the creation rather than God. But notice with me one thing the devil says in Luke 4, verse 5. He said, And the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms in the world in a moment of time. And said to him, To you I will give all this authority and all their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. He offered him the world. The devil here claims to be the god of the kingdom of this world. He is claiming dominion over this earth and then claims that he will make Jesus king over all of it in a moment of time if Jesus will make the devil his god. We might think this is a ridiculous temptation, but think for just a moment about the depth of the temptation. If Jesus fell down and worshipped the devil, there would be no cross, no suffering, no pain. He could have his heart's desire now. He could establish his reign over all creation. It was literally right in front of him. All he had to do was stretch out his hand and take it. But instead of falling victim to the temptation to worship the creation and the God of this world, Instead of investing his life and hope in this kingdom, Jesus responds this way. Verse 8, And Jesus answered the devil, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. After this, Jesus went out into Galilee and all Judea, and guess what he started proclaiming? It wasn't the kingdom and the joys of this world. He went into all the country proclaiming this, the good news of the kingdom of God and its coming. Calling the rebellious sons of this world to turn in repentance and faith to the one true king who had come and was going to establish his kingdom. Jesus refused to make it his life's mission to gain stuff of this world. Instead, he kept his sights on the joy and the great gain that awaited him in the kingdom of God. 
The false teachers in 1 Timothy, 1, 1 Timothy 6, verse 5, were seeking to gain riches, fame, and power in the kingdom of this world. Their thoughts, desires, effort, and yes, even their religious activity was all for the purpose of investing in the kingdom that was right in front of them. And able, this kingdom that was able to give them the immediate gratification that they so desired. But in verse 6, Paul calls all the ambassadors, all Christians for the kingdom of God, who are living in the midst of this rebellious people to seek great gain in the kingdom of God, not this kingdom of the world. To invest in the kingdom that cannot yet be seen or grasped. Content to wait patiently for the coming of our hope. Because to the degree that we are completely satisfied in knowing God and living for Him, no matter what this life throws at us, to that extent, we will receive great gain. In Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13, Paul echoes these words and gives us an example of a faithful ambassador for God in this fallen world that we're in right now. He says in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Paul can say these words because his hope is firmly set on his King. The king who has promised him grace for today and eternal gain in the life to come. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 7, Paul points out the foolishness of living for gain in the kingdom of this world. He reminds us that we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. When babies are born, they don't come out with a Rolex watch attached to their wrist. Brand new babies don't roll up to the front door of your house in a Rolls Royce. In and of themselves, they do not promise savings accounts, an inheritance, houses, or lands. Every human being who has ever been born came into this world naked without even bringing food or clothing and every human being will leave this world the same way. You may have gained the whole world during your life, but the moment you die, you lose it all. And it is taken from you and given to another. One of the most powerful reminders of this is Job's words as he endures the loss of his tremendous wealth and the loss of all his children. One servant after another comes to him telling him of the Disasters that had come upon him all in a single day. But Job responds in this way. This is Job chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. And what? Complained? No. It says he fell on the ground and he worshipped. 
And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though beat down and distressed by his tremendous loss, Job remind, reminded himself and reminds us that we cannot keep anything from this life. We are only temporary stewards of the good gifts God gives. Our contentment cannot be based on how many things we hold in our hands. That would be foolish because after these brief 90 or 100 years or less, we will drop everything in our hands. It will be gone. Godliness requires that we be content, satisfied to know God and live for Him. Whether things are flowing into our hands or flowing out of them. Contentment is evidenced by a heart that worships and says, Blessed be the name of the Lord, even though this world is falling apart around us, because our hope is set on the world and the one to come. In verse 8, Paul gives us a practical example of what God declares to be a genuine need for his ambassadors to serve him in this world. He says in verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now he's not saying that if you find yourself in prison because you are proclaiming the gospel and your city like rises up and imprisons you and they beat you and you're now sitting there half naked in prison without food. He's not saying that if you find yourself in that condition that now you can complain. Now you don't have to be content anymore. You can now throw up your hands and curse God. No, he's not saying this. Instead, he is correcting our thinking on what our needs truly are. He lists two things. He says food and clothing. Well, food is pretty simple. It means sustenance, nourishment, food and drink, the things the body would quickly die without. But the Greek word translated clothing could mean any type of man-made covering. The idea is that human beings need a covering to both conceal our nakedness and also to protect us from the elements. This can come in the form of clothing, but it could also refer to shelter. There are many places in the world where human beings would not survive very long without shelter from the harsh weather conditions, and this would also be included in Paul's meaning. But no matter which way we look at these two biblical needs, they are very basic and well below our current standard of living. In fact, as I thought about this list, I realized that if a member of our church was living hand-to-mouth every day with only one pair of clothes and a makeshift shack for shelter, if that was all they had, then we would be very concerned about them. And we would be looking for ways to intervene and bless them. This minimal standard of living is so far removed from most of our thinking and so far removed from what we would actually be content with. And passages like this one, the purpose of them is, is designed to bring us back to reality. The things we so often think of as needs in our current time, the age we're in, the city, the country, whatever it might be, 
The things we, we so often think of as needs are actually unnecessary for life and godliness. They are, are unnecessary for contentment. Now I have a confession to make to you. My flesh, my sin nature that is still being put to death in this life, it is not content with bread, water, and one set of clothes. There is still that part of me that longs for the treasures and pleasures of this world. And most days I still hear that voice in my heart saying, you need that. You deserve that. You must have those. <clears throat> and the path that leads to my flesh's every desire is the highway of money. My flesh often tries to convince my heart that if I only had enough money, then I would be satisfied. If I only had enough money, then I would be truly content. This is the lie that Paul is talking about. The lie that the world, the flesh, and the devil so often use to trip Christians and cause them to stumble and fall, causing them to no longer be faithful ambassadors for the kingdom of God, but instead traitors to God. Paul warns us of this danger in verses 9 through 10. He says to Timothy, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice that Paul uses three phrases to describe the same temptation. The desire to be rich, the love of money, the craving for wealth. First, the desire to be rich means that someone has determined in their heart that they will be rich or must be wealthy. Most teenagers and young adults that I've ever spoken to begin life with this desire. They want to reach and even sometimes surpass the wealth that their parents had before them. In fact, if they don't at least meet the level of financial success that their parents had, then they feel that they will be seen as a failure to some degree within their family. This overwhelming desire to immediately meet and even surpass the standard of living that they experienced during childhood has caused a phenomenon in our day where most young professionals could sell everything they own to a bank but then would still be in debt. They are living in luxury but their net worth is worse than nothing. Paul says the desire to be rich causes people to fall into temptation, into a snare. To say in your heart, I will be rich, is to knowingly walk into a trap, into a scheme of the devil to give you the world, to take your soul. Verse 9 goes on to warn that this desire will cause you to fall into many senseless and harmful desires. If you allow the desire for wealth to burn in your heart, then it will also 
kindle and inflame other desires that destroy the soul. Greed, jealousy, covetousness, envy. If someone takes you off, then murderous hate. And even it inflames the desire to be free from God because he keeps getting in my way. These desires plunge people into ruin and destruction. The Greek word translated plunge literally means to sink or drown. Comparing the desire to be rich to an anchor that drowns your soul. The Christian who says in his heart, I will be rich, is just as foolish as a swimmer who jumps into the ocean while clinging to an anchor. As long as you cling to that anchor, you will descend into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, the heart of Paul's warning, is one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. And often after hearing about another financial scandal or a story about greed, you'll hear people say, doesn't surprise me. After all, money is the root of all evil. Is that really what this passage is warning about? We see in verse 10 that the passage actually says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. In reality, we see that gold and silver coins, paper money, investments, a bank account, a house, a car, a farm, and other forms of wealth, that they are not in reality evil in and of themselves. Instead, the point is that the love of these things or lusting after these things is the root of all kinds of evils. To call this misplaced love a root of evil means that it is the driving factor, the thing just below the surface that is really responsible for someone's actions. Here's the point. To the extent that the love of money takes hold of your heart, to that extent, it will produce all kinds of evil in and through you. Cheating, fraud, perjury, injustice, robbery, theft, quarreling, violence, murder. If the love of money produces these things, then it's not surprising that in verse 10, that it goes on to say, it is through this craving for wealth that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs or wounds. Jesus warned about this when he compared this craving for wealth to a thorny weed that strangles a person's desire to know God, to hear his words. Jesus told his disciples that some people hear the word of God, of his coming kingdom, of this joyful good news. They hear it. They hear it with their ears. But then the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. It's Mark 4.19. Many people hear the word and reject the eternal joy to come for the sake of gaining this world's immediate wealth. They are investing in the kingdom of this world 
because they do not love or highly value the kingdom to come. In order to give us a more complete understanding of how the Christian is in to interact with wealth in this world, I'd like to skip down a few verses and draw your attention to 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. Verse 17, Paul says to Timothy, As for the rich in this present age, and he's talking about rich or wealthy Christians, he says, As for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing a treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. According to Paul's earlier definition of basic human needs. And as we think about what life would have been like for those in Ephesus in the first century, and we look at all of the conveniences, the cars, the buses, the houses, you know, washing machines, televisions, I mean, the list can really go on about the things that most of us have some of these things, if not all of them, that we steward right now the chances are very high that most of us, in, in Paul's mind at least, most of us are in this, ca this category of those who have much, those who control and steward wealth and have the ability to share with others. So as we read this, it does most likely apply to, to most, if not all of us. But what's interesting about um, after all those warnings of the dangers of loving wealth, it's interesting that Paul doesn't demand that wealthy Christians just chuck or throw in the garbage bin all of their wealth. He doesn't give a maximum income for Christians. There are no limits on how much land you can own or how many square meters your home is allowed to be. Paul doesn't say how many t-shirts and shorts he had in his closet. He just does not say <laughs> Instead, throughout this entire passage, it is clear that money, wealth, possessions, and even prosperity are not evil in and of themselves. Over and over again, the point is made that God is primarily concerned about the desire of our hearts. What do we love? Who do we love? Verse 17 warns wealthy Christians to guard their hearts against pride and false hope. Pride because the world and our flesh lie to us and tell us that we are someone. We have arrived and in fact that we are better than others if we are holding more stuff in our hands at the end of the day. That's the lie we're told all day long. But Christians reject this lie by remaining humble servants of the Lord and others no matter how much stuff passes through our hands. Wealthy Christians must also guard against false hope because this world and our flesh lie to us again and tell us that we are safe and secure if we have full bank accounts, diversified investments, and a hefty insurance plan. We so often are tempted to believe the lie that hope for the future is established through wealth. 
but a Christian reminds himself daily that every good thing comes from God. That the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. My job is to set my hope on Him and to proclaim, Blessed be the name of the Lord, no matter what comes and goes from my hands. Verses 18 through 19 conclude this section on wealth with very encouraging words for Christians. Paul is going to tell Christians how they can turn the fading wealth of this world that will not last, how they can turn that into eternal treasure. Paul says that Christians with earthly wealth should do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. He gives, first gives just these very general, broad uh, so this broad statement about what we should do with our wealth, and then he tells us why we should be so eager to do these things. Verse 19 says that Christians who do these things are storing up or investing in the treasure of God's kingdom. And that God's treasure is what is truly life, now and for eternity. It doesn't mean that we're going to have a bunch of stuff in this life, but we can have joy, peace, hope, love, friendship, relationship, things that will last. So often we fall victim to the lie that if we had more money or better possessions, then we would have abundant life. But that is a lie. The only way to have abundant life is to be content to know God and live for Him in this life while you eagerly await His kingdom that's coming because you know that that is where your treasure is. Do not waste your life chasing after the treasure of this world because you cannot keep it. You cannot keep one gram of it. And in the end, this carnal desire, if your life is lived for this kingdom, it may in the end cost you your life. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and you will receive the greatest gain. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have told us the truth through your word, that the Spirit of God is working in each one of your children's hearts, minds, and lives to help convince us and to show us the truth. This world is lying to us. This world wants to deceive us and lead us astray. But I thank you that you have not left us without reminder, without the truth. Oh, Lord, implant your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. Give us a love and a yearning for your kingdom to come. Lord, would you please not allow anyone to leave this building today still chasing after the kingdom of this world, plunging themselves deeper and deeper into ruin and destruction leaving them unaware and, and not ready for your coming. 
would you do this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.